As you're in James 4, we're walking through James this year, and we're exploring the idea of how our, our lives can actually put Jesus on display. We sang about that in the first song, that speak, O word, your truth, that our lives can experience and demonstrate the reality of who Jesus is. It is possible to live in such a way that Jesus, the very person of Jesus, the attributes and characteristics of Jesus, can be seen in us and through us and how we live. If we have a living, real faith in Jesus, we're trusting Him, obeying Him, walking this out. And one way we know our faith is real and alive, and this is a big theme in James, is it shows up in real, genuine works. Our faith is not just something we say, it is something we do. So we would not affirm, it doesn't really matter what you believe, just do good works. It's kind of a silly thing to say because there is something that you believe that is driving those good works, and that needs to be assessed. Like maybe the good that you do is simply you trying to earn or accomplish the love of God. Or maybe the good that you do is simply you living up to the expectations of people you care about. Maybe the good you do is driven by fear of consequences if you don't do good. I don't really want to suffer negative consequences, so I'll keep doing what is good and right because I'm afraid of what will happen if I don't. Maybe the good you do is, ex is because it's expected of you and you don't want to let people down. Or maybe you just believe that doing what is good and right is just the best way to live. Whatever the case is, everyone's actions are driven by beliefs, even if their beliefs are not centered or driven by the gospel. So we would not affirm, it doesn't matter what you believe, just do good. It does matter what you believe. Why are you doing the good that you do? But we would also not affirm a faith that is correct doctrinally, so you're believing the right things, but it doesn't show up in action. It's just empty faith. In fact, this is what James condemns. James would say, faith isn't even real faith if it doesn't show up in action. It is, in fact, dead faith. In fact, he goes so far as to say in James 2, it's demonic faith. There has to be action accompanying faith for faith to be real and alive, to show that it's real and alive. It's not that our works make our faith real and alive, but if our faith is real and alive, it shows up in works. If the works aren't there, is the faith really alive? And when you put all this together, you have real genuine faith centered in the gospel, the person who worked Jesus on behalf of sinful humanity. This leads to actions that look like Jesus. Jesus is alive in us. Jesus can be seen through our words and our actions. We're not trying to accomplish the righteousness of God through sinful human anger. Some of the things James has walked us through. We're not just being hearers of the word, but we're being doers of the word as well. We're taking care of the widows and the orphans, James chapter 1. We're not becoming polluted by the sinful world we live in, also James 1. We're not showing favoritism of the rich over the poor, James 2. We're seeing God help us control our tongues in the way that we speak about others, James 3. We've seen him walk through several examples, and he covers more in the book of James, and there's more than just the book of James. It's an entire Bible full of what genuine faith shows up in action, or how genuine faith shows up, shows up in action. So it sounds great, right? We are a people who have come to see and believe in Jesus and his gospel, that though we are sinful and rebellious, though we are the only part of God's creation that shakes our fist in his good and gracious face and says, no, I want my way, 
Though that's who we are, though we only deserve God's wrath and punishment for our sins, that's all we've earned. Though we are not righteous, Jesus is perfect. Jesus is sinless. He is the God-man. He is the only one who lived out God's law perfectly, taking our place. On the cross, He received God's wrath for our sins. He was crucified for our transgressions. Our sins were laid on Him. He was buried. And therefore, through trusting in the person and work of Jesus on our behalf, we are forgiven. And not only are we forgiven, but it gets even better, we get credit for the good works that Jesus did. So that when God sees us, He doesn't just see Jared and Jared's sins, He sees Jared fully forgiven and given credit for the righteousness of Christ. It's as though I did the righteous works that Jesus did. That's how good I look in God's eyes through Jesus. God still sees our sinfulness. He sees everything. He's omniscient. But He sees the righteousness of Christ covering, wrapping over my sinfulness so that He sees me, He sees you as a dearly loved son of your Father in Heaven, a dearly loved daughter of your Father in Heaven. And that's how He sees you all the time. On your worst days, He still sees you as His dearly loved son and daughter. And then on your best days, when you're really killing it, you can't be more loved than He already loves you. His love is perfect and complete. We live in that place. And He wants us to rest in that place and to enjoy being His son and daughter. And Jesus then rose from the dead and is alive in us, empowering all the good that now we want to do and we can do because Jesus lives in us. And this new identity in Jesus, this radical transformation from being rebels and worshipers is so real and transformative. The Bible calls us, us, me and you, the body of Christ. Where is Jesus in the world today? Look around the room. We're it. It's not this building. It's not a place that you go. It's the people of God. Us. It's amazing. We are the presence of Jesus in the world today as God's people, speaking God's truth and love, doing God's work, seeing God's kingdom spread through our actions and love and deed. It's amazing who we are. It's amazing what we can do. What could be better than this? There really is nothing better. And this is priority. Everything else fits into this. Our families, our jobs, our, our hobbies, like everything else fits into this ultimate calling and identity that God's given us in Jesus. And if it were just that and only that, it would literally be heaven on earth. But we can also be the people who James refers to as, in James 4.4, you adulterous people. And last week we saw how in the language he's using, Basically, James is calling them, spiritually speaking, you are wives running away from a loving, gracious husband to find and seek for love in the arms of other lovers. Spiritually, that is also who we can be through what James describes as friendship with the world. We looked at this last Sunday. Aligning our hearts and minds to be in lockstep with the world system that's under the temporary control of God's enemy, Satan. 
it shows up in sin. So we're not having like board meetings with this evil lair of leaders or whatever. It's just sin. Just when we sin, rebel against God, and we don't live the way God's created us to live, we are in lockstep with God's enemy. So that our heart doesn't love what God loves, but it loves what God hates. And everyone in this room who professes Christ and has a real relationship with Christ can feel this tension in our lives. And we hate it. We absolutely hate it. At times we obey and we're used by Jesus to do this beautiful, beautiful work. It's so beautiful and so pure. You look back and you just kind of shake your head. I'm not even sure how or why that happened that left people feeling loved or encouraged or helped. But they felt the presence of Jesus through what we've said or done. And the kingdom spreads and we're like blown away. Thank you God you can use me. And then at times, we can absolutely spiritually look like we've cheated on Jesus. That we've taken his great love for us, and we've treated it like what he's done for us on the cross has no meaning or effect. It doesn't even matter because I want what I want right now. How often we come face to face with this duality. And it just kind of depends on what season of life we're in or how much we've grown and matured or what pressures or stressors we're facing or a thousand other factors about how that tension looks in your life right now. For some, it's very real. It's like at the surface of who you are and it's killing you. And for others, you maybe you're knocking it out of the park right now and you're just enjoying Jesus in a fresh way. Awesome. The battle's going to come back. We never outlive it. We can't outrun it. It's with us until we die, until Jesus returns to establish the eternal state. And so what do we do when we're confronted by this ugly reality that we have not yet fully arrived, that our hearts still chase other lovers? And that's the next section of James that we're in today. So let's pick up where we were last week, verse 4, and then finish through verse 10. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says, the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely. But he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your heart, your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep, and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. The response to our spiritual adultery, the tendency for us to love the world more than God and have friendship with the world more than friendship with God, begins in verse 6 with humility and it ends in verse 10 with humility. And this section is very similar to something that Peter would write in 1 Peter 5, beginning in verse 5. In the same way, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God resists the proud with his grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him because he cares about you. Be sober-minded, be alert, your adversary, the devil, is prowling around, a roaring lion, looking
looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. And so some believe this may have been an early church uh, uh, widespread call to repentance that was repeated and shared often, which is why there's this commonality between Peter and James. Imagine that, those closest to Christ in time, chronology, those that we put on pedestals for their faithfulness to Jesus in the face of persecution, as Christianity spread like wildfire in the first century, the first century Christians, they also felt this tension of wayward hearts. And they too needed constant reminders of how to fight. And it begins and it ends with humility. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. Humility is not dogging or downing yourself. Humility is simply seeing yourself accurately. It's the spiritual bankruptcy Jesus describes in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, the very first one necessary before you move on to the other seven statements of blessing in the Beatitudes. Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Being poor in spirit is owning and recognizing our own spiritual bankruptcy when it comes to God's blessings and God's kingdom. So when Michael Scott yells, I declare bankruptcy, if he were talking about spiritual bankruptcy, Oscar would have said, well, actually, you can do that. Not that we have to declare it out loud, but we have to believe it. That's where we start. You come to the kingdom, and when you come to the kingdom of heaven, and you're blessed by God, it's not because you hauled in all your accomplishments or your achievements or your potential. It's not as though God's choosing teams and he sees you and says, man, there, now there's a five-star recruit. Of course I'm going to put them on my team. No. Being poor in spirit, spiritually bankrupt, true humility is an accurate seeing of self that says, I bring nothing into this. I'm simply a broken, sinful image bearer coming to the one who has all the resources I need. That has everything that I need. That has all the power, all the help. He has everything. I bring nothing into this relationship but the fact that I'm just a human being alive. It's the tax collector in Luke 18 where Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. We all have that tendency. We can all find someone to look down on so we feel better about ourselves. And Jesus says, you will never be right in my eyes if that's how you live. This kind of parable Jesus told infuriated religious leaders who based all their standing in God's eyes on their accomplishments and their knowledge and how people esteemed their record of obedience, how much better they did than the true sinners. And this heart of the self-righteous, the opposite of humility, self-reliance. And the easiest way to think much of self is to compare yourself to others. Well, at least I'm not. But the kind
kind of humility that God wants and rewards is not comparing ourselves, but seeing ourselves as broken as we actually are. Because in God's economy, the only accurate comparison to, in us is to God. He is the standard, therefore we all fall short. And therefore our only response is the response of the tax collector. God, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. And like, if you're thinking in your head right now, I know somebody needs to hear this. You're doing the same thing the Pharisee was doing. I need to hear this. You need to hear this. God, have mercy on me. We all say it. We all proclaim it. We all admit it. And it's, it'd be super easy for someone in this room to, to just stay there. Like, that's all I am. That's all I'll ever be. That's all my identity will ever experience is how broken and sinful I am. And we will just bury ourselves in shame. But that's also not where he wants us to stay. Yeah, we have to go there. We, every one of us has to go there. But he does not want us to stay there. So coming back to James, what we find is, in, after humility, verse 6, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble acknowledgement of our sinfulness is the place where we find God's greater grace. And as we continue in this humility, God, I need you. There's nothing good in me. All the good I need and can do is because of you. We find even more grace. Like the more humble you are, the more grace you get. The scary place is not the place of acknowledging how broken we are. We think it is because we're exposed. And it's vulnerable and it's scary. But what we need to know is in God's eyes and with God, it's actually the safest place. It's the safest place because it's a place of grace and greater and greater grace. It's a place where we find God's blessing. God blesses those who are poor in spirit. So Christian brother or sister, as, as we read that passage from, from John, uh, 1 John, don't be afraid of the light of God's holiness that exposes your sinfulness. Come into the light. Quit running, quit hiding, quit pretending, quit comparing. Be honest. We are that broken. We are far, far more sinful than we can possibly imagine. Yet we are far, far, far more loved than we ever dared dream possible. Come and find His greater grace. Grace upon grace. One author wrote, What comfort there is in this verse. It tells us that God is tirelessly on our side. He never falters in, to, in respect of our needs. He always has more grace at hand for us. He is never less than sufficient. He always has more and yet more to give. Whatever we may forfeit when we put self first, we cannot forfeit our salvation. There is always more grace. No matter what we do to Him, He is never beaten. His resources are never at an end. His patience is never exhausted. 
His initiative never stops. His generosity knows no limit. He gives more grace. And within this grace-driven relationship, we see life for us found in a way to live out this grace. And so, moving on from, from to verse 7, verses 7 through 10, there's nine imperatives, nine commands. This is now how we live out, out this relationship of grace. How we stay in this place of humility. How we stay as a friend of God and not a friend of the world. And when we find ourselves again wandering away in our hearts, that's how we come back. These three verses, seven, eight, nine, four verses, you can just live this out for the rest of your life. Never get beyond this. Just living this out constantly. We submit to God, verse 7. Therefore, submit to God. Submission is not simply choosing. Submission is simply choosing to fall under the leadership of someone else. We do it all the time in, in human relationships. You have a boss, you have to follow the leadership of your boss. We have governmental authorities, we follow the leadership of our governing authorities. You can't just decide one day and make up the rules myself and do what I want to do. I'm going to drive on the left hand side of the street. Well, good luck. You're going to kill somebody, get a ticket, make life miserable. We, we constantly submit to the, the rules that and the authorities that God has given us. In human submission, it's not a superior or inferior thing. It's simply you've been placed as an authority and I'm following your leadership. Does it make someone better than someone else? It's just the order of how God has governed things. It also doesn't mean in human relationships the one submitting doesn't have a voice. You do have a voice, but you're gladly choosing to align that voice and join with that voice with the one whose leadership you're following. But of course, this is submitting to God who is superior, but we're not submitting because we have no other choice. We do have a choice, as we saw in this passage. You can submit to the world. You can be a friend of the world. <coughs> but in submitting to him, we're saying he is the ultimate authority. His word, his truth is the ultimate truth. His way of life for us is best, and it's the only way to live. And submitting to him is us agreeing, yes, this is how I want to live. This is the best way to live. And we all battle that. And we all should sit in community with other brothers and sisters and work through these decisions. Hey, I'm thinking about doing this and have the community of God and the Word of God say, that's a good idea. That seems to be healthy. That's going to be life-giving to you. Or they may say, that sounds crazy. You shouldn't do that. Bad things are going to happen. We think it'd be wiser if you did this. So we're submitting to God by submitting to the, the wisdom that God has put in our life, the people around us. Secondly, we resist the devil. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. So maybe the God is resisting the devil. We don't go out there and take up a sword and let's go say, let's, let's fight it out. No, no, no. We, we stand and watch God defeat the enemy. The enemy who is already defeated. So there's not this cosmic battle that we see portrayed in the movies all the time between good and evil and we're not really sure who's going to win. God has already won. The victory has already been accomplished. Jesus says, it is finished. We don't have to wonder what the end is going to be like. We know what the end is going to be like. We know where we're headed. We know God has Satan on a leash. We know that God limits how much destruction and chaos that he allows Satan to carry out in people's lives and in the world. And sure, that doesn't make the, the questions to answer easier than, well, why does God allow this much and not this much? Why does it continue to pervade? Why are there still lives being destroyed? Why is there still sex trafficking? Why is there still racism? Why is there still all these sins that we hate? 
We don't know the answers to that. God is only wise and only God knows why he's still allowing the world to function the way that it functions. But we know it won't always be that way. We know that we're headed to a day when all that will end. And there will be the perfect kingdom of God and God's people in the eternal state forever and ever. And there will be no sorrow or sin or shame or, sin or, or, or sadness or no death or grieving. There will be no more racism or injustice. All of that will be gone one day. And so we, we already know the battle is won. The war has been won. And our, our resisting the devil is us submitting to God and saying yes to God and saying no to sin. That's how we fight. It's not us just saying wild, crazy things, tell Satan where to go, and Satan reminds you, you pass your mind of the future. That, none of that helps. Just say yes to righteousness and holiness, say no to sin. That's how we fight. The enemy of God, the temporary ruler of the world system, we quit resisting God and we start resisting the devil by obedience and saying no to sin. Satan's way of life, pride, selfishness, indulgence, sin. We quit saying and agreeing, that's okay. It's okay to play around with that. It's, it's a way to live. We start resisting him by obeying God and following his leadership. The essence of sin, going back to the garden, is trusting the devil and distrusting God. The devil says, you don't need God. You can find all you need in status and power and money and feeding your appetites. But God says, you need me most. You can have all of that and not have me and gain nothing. Gain nothing. You can have none of that but have me and you have everything. The whole world. You're inheriting the whole world as a son and daughter of your father in heaven. So who do you believe, Christian? And the battle with temptation is the battle, do I believe God or do I believe God's enemy? Before Christ, our natures were dialed into believing Satan alone. But once we are made alive in Christ, we now have the ability to live with power over sin by submitting to God and resisting the devil. And the promise of God is, he will flee from you. And he'll come back. But he'll say, oh, that's not going to work today. I'll come back tomorrow. When you come back tomorrow, you do the same thing, and he flees, runs away. And the more you resist, the more he flees. And the more that he finds, this is not someone I can work through. I can't accomplish my purposes with this person. Because their heart belongs to Jesus. Submit to God. Resist the devil. He'll flee from you. Verse 8, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. If or when you and I are turned away, this is telling us to turn back. Come back. Come near. And the amazing promise is, He will draw near to you. What if it just said, draw near to God? Draw near to God. Okay, I guess. What's going to happen? I don't know. The one who most hates us and wants to destroy us, we resist Him and He flees. He has power, but not ultimate power. But the one who most deservingly could banish, banish us because of our sins. James tells us, you lean into him, he leans into you. Like so much of our intimacy and enjoyment of God is wasted because we mess up and we think we have to stay away. We can't come back. 
I don't deserve, I don't belong, I've got to pay penance, I've got to earn my way back. I have to show a certain amount of remorse. And all, all he wants for us is to come to him. Draw near to me. And I'm waiting, I'm watching, and I'm ready to come and grab you up and embrace you and bring you back. Draw near to me in humility and submission and be embraced by me again. That's all he wants. He doesn't make it complicated because he wants you to enjoy and experience the love of being his son or daughter. He wants you to enjoy him as your perfect father. This room is filled with imperfect fathers. We've all had imperfect fathers. All that we do as fathers does not show the reality of our perfect father in heaven. He is the only perfect dad. Enjoy him. Love him. He goes on. Verse 8. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts of double-minded. Which speaks of our love of the world. Our double-minded devotions. Our divided devotions. So he's saying treat sin seriously. Inward sin and outward sin. Repent. Stop. And he goes on. Verse 9, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Well, that doesn't sound very exciting. That sounds kind of depressing. But it's not a general rule for all of life. But in the context, it's how we feel about sin. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So right after he says, Blessed are both the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, which is a big part of what influenced James in his writing, uh, Jesus is laying out these eight blessings. This is how God blesses his people. So it's specific to God's people. So there's not a general blessing from God for people being sad. Because then everyone would experience the blessings of God when they're sad. This is a particular blessing for God's people when they mourn over Sin. Poor in spirit, I'm spiritually bankrupt. I'm mourning over my sin. And Jesus says, you will be comforted. If your attitude towards sin is not, how can I do more and get away with it, but it breaks my heart, I want to stop. Jesus says, you will be comforted. You will be forgiven. You will find life. You will be received back to me. So there is forgiveness available when we're not trivial about sin, when we deal with it and take it seriously and it breaks our hearts. Like I think in the life of the cross thing, we've done a good job of trying to, by God's grace, be open and transparent about our sins. Like we're sinners, we're broken, nobody's got this figured out, nobody's perfect, nobody's arrived, but even on a pedestal, we're all just stumbling saints, falling forward by His grace. Yes. We have to be just as diligent about taking sin seriously, not being comfortable and cozy with sin. We're so accepted. Well, it doesn't really matter if I fight against sin. No, it, it matters. Read this passage. It matters a lot. We have to be just as passionate to hate sin, to fight against sin, to not get cozy with sin. Cornelius Plantinga has talked about how we've lost this view of sin. He says the awareness of sin used to be our shadow. Christians hated sin, feared sin, fled from sin, grieved over sin. Some of our grandparents agonized over their sin. 
A man who lost his temper might wonder whether he'd still go to Holy Communion. A woman who for years envied her more attractive and intelligent sister might wonder if this sin threatened her very salvation. But the shadow has dimmed. Nowadays, the accusation that you have sinned is often said with a grin and with a tone that signals an inside joke. At one time, this accusation still had the power to jolt people. It's this constant wrestling match to figure this tension out, right? Because in the past, we also did dumb things like tell people you couldn't come to church because you were caught playing cards or dancing or fishing on Sunday. Just stupid stuff the church has done in the past. So you, you, you always are trying to find this right tension with the right perspective about sin, where right conviction leads to right repentance, and there's a right embrace, and we're not creating systems of legalism, but we're also not creating systems where we don't we just shrug our shoulders at sin. We don't really care. It's a constant fight for God's people to find that right balance, but by God's grace we can. And if a pendulum is in your heart is swinging too far toward legalism, then allow God's word and God's people to bring you back to the middle. And if the pendulum of your heart is swinging too far to where you just licentiousness, you just don't care about sin, you just shrug your shoulders, you're not fighting anymore, then let God's word and God's people bring you back to the middle where you're fighting against sin in your own heart. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a, a well-known preacher from England, he says, he, he noted how the awareness of sin grew in times of revival. Go and read the history of revivals again. Watch the individuals at the beginning. This is invariably the first thing that happens to them. They begin to see what a terrible, appalling thing sin is in the sight of God. They temporarily even forget the state of the church and forget their own anguish. It is the thought of sin in the sight of God, how terrible it must be. Never has there been a revival but that some of the people, especially at the beginning, have had such visions of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of sin that they have scarcely known what to do with themselves. And then lastly, verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. We get low and He does the lifting. Isn't that amazing? We're afraid to go low because we're not sure we're coming out. We're just going to bury ourselves in this pit of shame and despair. And he says, if you go low by his grace, he brings you up every single time. He will not leave you there. He will exalt you. So in a few moments, we're going to share once again in this meal that we share in every Sunday. I figured out it's over 300 times that we've shared this meal together as a church family. And each time we share in this meal, it's, it's mingled with everything that we've looked at today, the reality of our sinfulness that made the death of Jesus, the Son of God, necessary. We come to the table after a time of examining ourselves, and we take the elements, the bread and the fruit of the vine, the juice, and we give space for that each week. It's not because we think, well, sit in your chairs and pay penance and feel a certain amount of remorse and then come. That's not it at all. Like, that's not what we want you to do. We want you to take time to examine yourselves to say, yes, this is where I've sinned. Yes, Jesus still loves me. Yes, Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient to cleanse me, forgive me once again. I'm not getting saved every week, but I'm enjoying my salvation more every week because I'm believing again in the sufficiency of Christ. Yes, I am so sinful Jesus had to die, but I am also so loved He was glad to die for me. 
We often sit and think for a while. We, we hope it's just time to confess and repent and believe in Jesus once again. That's what this space is for. But if you're not sure if you're a Christian or you're not sure if you're really repentant, then it's space to consider those things. And, and we're here to help. Like, let's talk after the service. Or I'll be standing back there. You can come find me. We'll talk now. Find someone else that you came with. Let's work through where your salvation is, where your heart is with Jesus. But it's not like there's a predetermined amount of time prescribed to sit and wait before coming and receiving the elements. Like if you know right now I hate sin, I don't want to sin, I believe that Jesus has forgiven me, He's my Savior, He's my King, I love Him, I want to follow Him more and more and more. You don't have to wait at all, I'll just come. Come and get the elements. You're ready. You're ready to enjoy this meal together, reminding us of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. But we do want to be there to be space for those who need to consider more, possibly even not partake in this meal because your heart isn't where it needs to be or you're not trusting in Jesus for salvation. And then come and grab the bread, showing us the body of Jesus broken for our sins, the fruit of the vine, the juice, the shed blood of Jesus shed for the forgiveness of our sins. He was punished for us. He paid the price for us. And you and I coming and sharing this meal each week is us continuing to hate our sins, continuing to draw near to God's humility, continuing to submit to His leadership, and continuing to experience His grace. So I don't, I don't know, we're kind of throwing things together with the music today. I don't know if we're going to play during this time or not, but just take time if you need it, consider where your heart is, and then come when you're ready. And after everyone has had a chance to come and receive the elements, we'll share that meal together.